Today we're going to be reading from Psalm 133. A Song of Ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Good morning, church. It is a, it is a privilege to be here today to look at God's word with you. I wish you a, a belated happy new year. We're a couple days into the year already. It did happen. We got out of 2020. Um, Looking at my sermons, I always put a date on my sermons, and when I put a date on this one, I realized I didn't get to preach once last year, and um, I missed it, and I'm, I'm glad I get to preach, and uh, I'm hoping with, uh, is that ringing for everybody else? I'm hoping with uh, the, uh, some changes in my work and some changes uh, in other places, I'm going to be able to get to preach more often, so I'm glad I get to do it today. As you, as you heard, the, uh, the psalm is not a long psalm. It's only three verses. There's not that many words to talk about today. Uh, but, but the words are valuable. The words are precious. The words are important. And we're going to take a deep look into these words and see what they would have for us today. I'm reminded of a story, and as often happens with me, I can remember the story, but not quite where I found it or who said it. So I'm just going to steal somebody's story uh, and ask for forgiveness if they ever find out. I think it's Spurgeon, so I'm probably safe, um, but it was a seminary, and they were teaching students about studying the Word, and they gave them one verse, and they said, bring back 50 items from this one verse. So they sent them off, and they went to study, and they sat out by the trees, and they came back in an hour, and most of them had 20 or 30 things, and they said, oh, that's great, now go back and, and find, find more. And they came back in a couple more hours, and they had a few more things. And he said, that's great, but you've still got more to mine out of this verse. So they sent them back out, and they came back finally at the end of the day with some of these beautiful truths that they had dug out of the Word. So that's what I'm hoping today, as, as we look at this very small section of Scripture, that, that we dig into it, that we mine these truths, that we'd see what, what God has for us. And I think it's beautiful. I say that because... When I uh, found out I was preaching this psalm, I was excited because it's about beard oil, right? I like beard oil. I use beard oil. He uses beard oil, so it's a good thing. But then, of course, upon further inspection, it's not a psalm about beard oil, but it's still good. Uh, it's about unity, which is even better. And I think if we dig in a little further today, we'll find out it's even more than just about unity. So I invite you to pay attention, to lean into these few words that we have today so that we can see what the psalm is trying to tell us. Join me in prayer. God, I pray that you do reveal what you'd have for us, that I could step out of the way, Lord, that we could hear your word, that we'd hear your voice, Lord, that your word would be effective, that it would bring conviction where required and the soothing balm where needed. Lord, that you would remove the veil from our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would soften our hearts, or that we could hear you. Thank you for giving us your word. It certainly was not required. Thank you for giving us insight into your, 
into your desire, into your will, into your prayers. That certainly was not required. We're thankful today. I join Mark in echoing our prayer for the other churches, especially uh, Palm Bay this morning, Lord, as they begin afresh and anew with, with Justin and Sarah as they launch uh, Cross Point uh, Palm Bay. Lord, that your hand would be on them. Lord, that we could partner with them and watch them grow. That we could experience a unity that includes more. More and more, Lord, that's what we ask for. Uh, more and more that you may be glorified. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to dig into these words, and it may seem a bit tedious. We're even going to look at some of them one by one. And we're going to start in verse 1 appropriately. And uh, I like what actually Spurgeon this time did have to say as we look at verse 1. At at the first word, it's, it's a key first word. It's behold, right? We should behold something. What are we beholding? He introduces the study with this. He says, it is a wonder seldom seen. Therefore, behold it. It may, it may be seen, for it is characteristic of real saints. Therefore, fail not to inspect it. It is well worthy of admiration. Pause and gaze upon it. It will charm you into imitation. Therefore, note it well. He's speaking of the unity here. We are to behold it. It is something to see. It is something to take hold of, to take note of. It is something that when we see, it's beautiful and we want to imitate. And we're going to go on. And he says, behold how, right? He doesn't say, he doesn't say, behold this thing, behold this most excellent thing. He doesn't say, he doesn't give us a superlative. He doesn't give us a measurement. It's an invitation. Stop and look, and then look at how good it is. He is inviting us to look into unity itself and say, how good is it? He's inviting us to measure it itself. And the first thing he does say about it is that it is good, right? When I hear the word good, the Calvinist in me says, no one's good but God, right? That's always my first response. Someone, I ask someone how they're doing and I say, they're good. I always like to joke and say, no, only God is good, right? And it's true, only God is good. That was my response when I read good here. And I think we come to find out that unity is with God, unity is God, and God is good. So, and it's in scripture, so it's okay. I won't, I won't correct it, but it's, uh, it's something to remember. I, I use it as a joke, but it's also a good reminder. God is good. Unity is good. But it's not just good, right? Unity, what does it say? Behold how good and pleasant. Right? Many things are pleasant and not good, right? You're probably thinking of something right now. Something is pleasant and not good. Sin and idols are the easiest place to find something that is pleasant and not good, right? They bring us pleasure. We seek them out. The, the lie of sin, the lie of idols is that it brings a pleasure that's lasting. That's how we fall into the trap over and over and over. It's pleasant, but it's not good. Many things are good, but they're not pleasant, right? The conviction of sin is a very good thing. Praise God for conviction of sin, but it's not pleasant, right? Confronting a brother or sister in their sin is a good thing, but not pleasant, right? Justice 
can be very good and at many times not pleasant, right? But what we have here today is something that is good and pleasant, and that's a beautiful thing, something we should hold on to, something we should seek, right? If we truly believe that this is good and pleasurable, we should seek after it. What do we seek? What do we trade for things that are just pleasurable, right? We give up our time. We give up uh, many things. We give up things that are important to seek things that are pleasurable. Think of all those distractions that pull us away from our, from our task at hand. We seek these things that are pleasurable, we, and we, we work towards them. So if this is good and pleasurable, how much more should we work towards this? So the next key word, it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers, right, brothers. It's a key word. It's a brotherhood, a togetherness, right? But brothers and sisters, as we know, doesn't mean unity by itself, right? We have any brothers and sisters in, the, in, in here today? I think we have a couple. I think the kids are with us. I think the adults are with us, right? Being brothers or sisters does not mean unity. Can I get an amen from the parents that, that brothers and sisters does not mean unity, right? All we have to do is look at the first brothers recorded in Scripture, Cain and Abel, far from unity. So far, it ended in murder, right? So just because we're brothers doesn't make us unified. Just because we're sisters doesn't make us unified. In fact, it could mean the opposite if we talk about our, our, our uh, temporal, physical brother and sisterhood. But the next word, when brothers dwell, adds a layer of challenge, right? Not when brothers and sisters visit each other. Not on Christmas and New Year's and Easter is unity to take place. That's not the unity that David is praising and singing about here. He's singing about when brothers and sisters dwell together, when they, are, when they live together, when they are in each other's lives, right? Which I think is what happens with the, the younger brothers and sisters in our households is that they're forced to be together all the time, right? We know a little bit about dwelling together thanks to COVID, right? We were forced to be together and at times it was beautiful, and at times it was awful, right? We were dwelling, we were living, we were, could not escape each other. We learn about each other, we learn the annoyances. I think of a newly married couple that's moved in together, and you learn about snoring, right? And you learn about all the little ticks and annoying habits about dishes or what have you. We learn about dwelling. And unity in dwelling is an especially hard thing, right? We can fake unity for a while. We can fake unity on a visit, on a holiday, but we can't fake it when we dwell. So that's what we're called here to. It's a unity that is unified even when dwelling together. And that's been hard as a church, right? This past year has proven it's been hard to dwell together with our brothers and sisters in this past year. We've been forcibly, physically, separated, socially distanced, right? We've been told we can't be within six feet of each other. We've been told when we can and cannot meet, right? 
Um, it's been difficult. So that's the question that came to my heart as I was preparing. Are we dwelling, just not, just not on Sundays and not on when we meet for CG, are we dwelling? It's a challenge. How do we do it, right? How do we dwell together? How do we know the annoyances of each other and still dwell? How do we get into each other's lives? It's a question I'm asking you without an answer, really. But it's a question we all need to ask, is how do we dwell in these times? How do we dwell and not just wait for things to get better? How do we get into each other's lives, stay into each other's lives, and find that unity together? So I would pray that we would continue to, to seek that answer, to seek, keep asking that question as we move forward. So then we get to the big word. We get to what we're, what we're beholding. We get to what is good and pleasant, and it is unity, right? Unity, it's, it's a key word. It's good and pleasant. It is, it is what Spurgeon called us to pause and, ga- and gaze at, right? But why is unity so important? What's the big deal about unity? Certainly, there's a lot of fruit of the Spirit. There's a lot of characteristics that are good about, you know, Christians and, and God that He provides. Why unity, and why is it so good? Well, a couple weeks ago, Jeremiah shared with us an insight that we got to see the will of God. He expressed it in words on paper, and, and today we get to see that again. In John 17, there's a prayer from Christ to His Father. It's the high priestly prayer. It's in 17, 20 through 23. Now, this is a prayer that's written down for us between God and the Father. We have absolutely no business, right? We have absolutely no right to have access to this, right? This is a private prayer of Christ to God, and yet he's given it to us. He's shared it with us. And we're going to read it today. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me, loved them even as you loved me. So that can be a little confusing. There's a lot of saying the same thing kind of again and again in there, which Scripture does when it's important, right? Christ is inviting us into a perfect oneness, a oneness that we can't understand. We talk about the Trinity, right? We try to use illustrations. We try, we try to make sense of the Trinity, and every time we fail, right? It's a oneness that we don't get. It's a oneness that existed before the beginning of time. It's a oneness that will exist after the world ends, and it's all made right again. It's a perfect oneness with the Prince of Peace, right? It's a oneness. And this is what Christ requested. This is his request of the Father, that we be invited, right? 
that we could be part of that oneness, that he would bring us. Mark talked about the requirement for holiness. How could we ever meet it? Right? What is our only hope that we could meet this, this bar that we can't even see? It's so far beyond us. Our hope is this oneness that he's talking about, that we are in Christ and therefore in perfect union with Christ and the Father and the Spirit. This is why we are to pause and gaze and behold and look at unity, right? Because it's beyond a unity that we think about. It's a unity with God. It's a unity that makes us in Christ, right? And that is our hope. This past year has been hard. We've seen something much different, much less than the unity, right, that Christ was calling for. We've seen what would appear to be a lot of disunity, right? We see fractures and we see groups and we see this side and that side. But what I'd argue is that it's not disunity. It's just unities and the wrong things, right? People are finding unity all over the place. Wherever you want to look, there's unity. Is it arguments about race and justice? Is it economics? Is everyone an epidemiologist all of a sudden, right? Should we open? Should we close? Should we wear a mask? Should we not wear a mask? Politics, right? That was a big one for unity. People found unity in politics like no other time I can remember, right? It was these small unities that were popping up. Social media, you wanna find unity? Jump online. There's someone out there who thinks the exact same thing you do or the thing you want to think or whatever group you're looking for. You will find unity on social media. You will find a group that agrees with you. But these are a lower standard than what God's called us to. These aren't the unities that he was speaking to. This isn't what he was praying for in his high priestly prayer. But we do what we always do, which is we take something God presents and we lower it to a standard that we think we can meet, right? We pretend, we perform, and we bring something down to something that we feel like we can do out of pride, right? So what do we seek for most often? Family unity, right? That's an easy one. Can't we all just get along for five minutes? Can't there be peace in the house? Can't you not hit your sister? Can't you not break the toy? Can't you not be screaming, right? Family unity, right? We see that family at church, that one family who comes and their kids are all hair combed and they're nicely dressed and everyone's behaving and they sit down and they're quiet and they listen and the eight-year-old's taking notes of the sermon, right? And it's just it's amazing, right? We see that family and we think, oh, if only we could be like that. But I would argue, are you dwelling with that family? Are you living with that family? Do you know what Sunday morning, 10 minutes before church look like? Do you know what, what Monday mornings look like, right? That's the, that's the piece of dwelling that we're called to. We're called to dwell. We're not called to be a leave it the beaver lifestyle. We're called to dwell, to know, because I could almost certainly guarantee you that family is not what you think they are. Um, it also leads us to a call to want to present the church right, as, this, as a unity, 
a community, right? We are the community church. We are good for the community. We, we do things, and we have kickball games, and we have picnics, and we do these things, and we present a unity that we try to perform, right? And those eventually will fail, right? Anything that we try to do by pretending and performing will eventually fall apart. Right? So we, we take that word unity and we redefine it into what we think we can do. We find unity on being on the right side of a discussion. We find unity on either being part of the conspiracy theory or squashing the conspiracy theory, right? We find it with a candidate. We find it all over the place. And what we saw last year, and will continue on, is like I said, all those things will fail. They all failed us last year, right? Anybody come out 2020 excited <laughs> with what you found? Not many, right? We saw brothers and sisters who were dwelling almost come to blows, right? We saw... Uh, things fall apart. The unity that was found was not good and was not pleasant. They were not inviting. They were not winsome to those outside the church. And to many inside and outside the church, they were downright repulsive, right? When I, when I think of unity, when I think of the unity that God creates, I often uh, default back to Pentecost, Right? in uh, Acts 2. It's the unity that was created among the ununified. Right, let's look at the group of people who were there, Acts 2, 9 through 11. And I'll probably mispronounce some of these, but Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Right, look at that list. How diverse is that group? More diverse than this room, I can tell you that. It was diverse in their, in their nature, in their nurture, in their culture, in their practices, and how they ate, and where they, what hours they slept, what languages they spoke. Diversity like crazy, right? All coming together. And we skip down to Acts 2.44. What does it say? It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Now, something happened there, right, between 11 and 44. You can't take this group of people, this diverse, and then say they had everything in common, because surely they didn't, right? Surely God did not wipe out all the personalities and make them all the same. He didn't start cloning people at Pentecost, right? They were different. They still had differences. They still had different languages. They still had different cultures. They still had differences in them that you could, that you could see and that you would experience if you were dwelling together. But the Spirit came. The Spirit came in them. And there was a unity that was born of that, right? So what if when it says they had everything in common, it means they had everything that matters, right? They had everything important in common. And all of a sudden, all the other things that were different didn't matter so much anymore because they had the spirit in common. They had God in common. They had the, what happened in common with them, that the spirit came and gave them new life. 
Let's jump up a couple verses. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Did anyone hear unity in that list, right? Did they devote themselves to being the same? Did they devote themselves to unity? No, they didn't have to because they were unified, right? You don't have to devote yourself to something you already are. They were unified in the spirit. They were unified by the spirit. They were unified by something outside of themselves, right? It's counterintuitive. What they had was a unity to God and not necessarily a unity to each other that was the focus. Now, as a byproduct of the unity to God, they ended up with a unity to each other. Tozer had this great quote, and Sandy shared it with me as I was preparing. It's, it's on the screen, I think. It says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive to closer fellowship. Right? We can't become unified by looking at each other. You can't even become unified by trying to become unified. Become unified by looking to God. We become unified by looking all, all of us, at a standard that's outside of ourselves. And by God's grace, that standard is unchangeable, right? You're not on version two, and I'm on version three over here, and we have a different unity. Now, God is the same from the beginning to the end. So when we find unity in God, we find unity with David, right? All the way back, because God is the same. It's the same God. It's the same God a thousand years from now, a million years from now, a million years in the past. We can all find a unity that has existed through the ages when we come together. It's a unity that will not fail. It's a unity that will not break down. We won't be disappointed in that unity. If we seek the Lord, we won't be disappointed in the unity that we find in Him right? Many of us were disappointed. And the, and the things that we seek that, that humans are involved in, if we're seeking unity in that, we're not going to find it. It's not going to change. It's eternal. It's unchanging. Our unity is in the Prince of Peace, in that oneness that He's invited us into. It's a unity that is already perfect, right? It doesn't need to be improved. And He's invited us into that. Because of this unity, because we are looking to God, instead of looking at each other, we are free to find unity with people we have no business finding unity with, right? We are free to find unity with people who are different than us. Think of Pentecost. We have, we have a freedom to find unity. As long as we're all looking at the same God, we have a unity to go out. I, I, I often, when I talk about that, I often think about my friend John Menton, right? God brought us together, and he, this guy is like a semi-pro tennis player, like excellent in sports, and he's an excellent, like gifted guitar player, like I can play Spotify, 
right? That's about it. And I'm not athletic. And there's many other differences. And yet he's my brother. I love him. And it's a unity that has been provided by God. God is the reason for our brotherhood, not sports or our music, because it would fall apart if that were the case. That's always the one of the most beautiful things in the church I love to see is when two people who have no business, the world says, why are you hanging out with him or her? Or why are you going over there? It's always so beautiful when we see that. It's because we have unity in Christ, right? And we are free. We are free to find unity that doesn't make sense to the world because it's a unity in God. We see Paul describe a unity, this unity of the Spirit. He fleshes it out in Ephesians 4, 2 through 6. He says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Right? It sounds like Paul knows something about dwelling. <laughs> patience, humility, gentleness, bearing with one another. Right? That's what's required when we dwell eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, that sounds like what you want to latch on to, right? That sounds like somebody who's in control, that sounds like who I want to be partnered with, who I want to have unity with, is that God. This is good and pleasant. Right? What Paul's describing mirrors the high priestly prayer, that we would be invited into that. That is something that we should seek for. So we've made it all the way to verse 2 now. Right? We're going to pick up speed a little bit, I promise. It says, it says, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collars of his robe. Right, I want to point out a few key things as, as we talk about this. The oil is precious. Right? This oil, this anointing oil is a precious thing. It was a special mixture. Uh, we have the mixture. We have the, uh, the recipe actually in, in Exodus 30. It tells us how to make it. It says, uh, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, he gave him a recipe, and here it is. Take the finest spice of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and a sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much. That is 250. It even does the math for us. And 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 acacia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. So I know what some of those things are, and I know that they're good things, and they smell good, right? And there would be a nice, this would be a nice beard oil, I think, right? This would be, this would be pretty sweet. Uh, and it, and it is, it's more than just nice, though. It's a, it's a holy oil. It's a special oil. It said uh, later in Exodus, it says, no one else can make this. Like, you can only make it here, right? It's very protected. And it's this perfect mixture. It's this unity of different things that would be attractive, that would, that would smell good, that would work well. It was pleasant to those around us. It was attractive to others. And we see this precious oil, this sacred, holy, anointing oil on Aaron almost wastefully, like 
just gratuitously applied to his head, right? So much that it, it ran down his beard, and I imagine it was a big beard, and it ran down his beard, and it ran into his clothes, right? It wasn't a little bit of oil. It was a lot of this anointing oil, and it diffused over him, and it, and it came down. I think about Mary applying the ointment to Jesus' feet and Judas saying, well, you're using too much of that. It's expensive stuff, right? What we see is a graciousness of, of this is outpouring, right? So these are, these are the illustrations that David is using to talk about the blessing of unity and how good and beautiful it is. It's a, this downward flow is important to note, this from the top down, from God, right? This blessing comes down and it diffuses and it doesn't stop, it just spreads, right? It's the diffusing of a blessing. The blessing doesn't stay put, right? The blessing of unity doesn't stay put it's attractive to others. They come in. They get touched by the oil. If you've ever worked with oil, uh, you know. You touch oil in a little spot, and all of a sudden, oil is everywhere. <laughs> it's almost as bad as glitter. It just gets everywhere. And so that's what this is. It's this almost contagious blessing, this blessing that just flows, this beautiful blessing from the Lord that comes from the top down. It's sweetly scented, and it's anointing, and it's holy. It's attractive, right? So we see David use a second illustration just to reiterate his point. The second illustration is similar to the, to the first. It says, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And we've got a picture, I think, maybe, of a mountain. This is Mount Hermon. This is the northernmost regions of the kingdom of Israel. It would be on, I think, a near Syria or Libya now, um, big mountain, 9,000 feet at the top, above sea level, shoots up a mile from the ground around it. When David talks about the dew, it's not just figurative. There is a dew. There is a thick, moisture-rich dew which comes down this mountain and is life-giving. There's orchards at the bottom of these mountains. Right There's growth in the midst of desert <laughs> and most other places, right? And we, and we see it again. We see this top-down flow of a diffuse bless, blessing that gives, gives life as it comes down, right? Now, where it might be figurative is that the dew from Hermon would reach Mount Zion, which is a hill by comparison. Um, it's over 100 miles away, so, but what we see is this, that just that th same thing that he's expressing, this abundance of blessing, this outpouring of a precious resource of water that is giving life. We see that when he's talking about it, what it does is oasis, right? This beautiful thing from the, from the high to the lows, this blessing is poured out. And then after he talks about the oil and after he talks about the mountain, there's this blessing in the second half of verse 3. It says, For the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Read that again. The Lord has commanded a blessing, life forevermore. He didn't speak a blessing, He didn't give a blessing. 
the Lord commanded a blessing. That should rock us, right? I know I've read this psalm before. I don't remember it like that. But sometimes when we go and we look and we dig deep, we, we see these words, the Lord has commanded a blessing. And not just any blessing, right? It wasn't that you would prosper. It wasn't that you would live long on the earth. The blessing is life forevermore, right? That's shocking. It should shock us. We should ask, though, it says, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing. All right, where's there? (laughs) That's where we want to be. That's where we need to be, wherever there is. If the Lord's commanding blessings there, you should be there. That's the place to be on the planet. So where is there? Is there referring to Zion, the last location right before there? Or is there referring to the place of brotherhood, of unity? Right? I, I say the answer is yes. It's both. Right? It's yes because both of these places are where the Lord is. The Lord is where there is unity, where there is true unity, and the Lord is in Zion. If we look at Psalms 132, 13 through 14, which Jeremiah preached a couple weeks ago, we see in verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. We see the Lord is in Zion. But what if the there, what we're talking about, is in the place of unity. We see again in Ephesians 4, if we go back to what we read from Paul, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Right, so we see God is in unity if we are in unity, we are in God. John 17, 21, the high priestly prayer again. There, there may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. They may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So whether it's referring to Zion or whether it's referring to the place of brotherly unity, that is where God is, and that is where we need to be, right? We need to be where God is. We need to be where he's commanding blessing. Spurgeon had this helpfully to say about the word there. He said, that is Zion, or better still, in the place where brotherly love abounds. Where love reigns, God reigns. Where love wishes blessing, there God commands the blessing. God has but to command, and it is done. He is so pleased to see his dear children happy in one another that he fails not to make them happy in himself. He gives especially his best blessing of eternal life. For love is life. Dwelling together in love, we have begun the enjoyments of eternity, and they shall not be taken from us. Let us love forevermore, and we shall live forevermore. This makes Christian brotherhood so good and pleasant. It has Jehovah's blessing resting upon it. So the blessing that we see, this blessing of eternal life, is something that has been poured out from above and given lavishly, given generously, like the oil, like the dew from Mount Hermon, and it comes down and it coats us, right? It's something precious, this blessing of eternal life, so precious that it required 
Christ to come and shed his blood, right? A blessing from above that was given graciously and lavishly, not sparingly, right? God did not spare his only son, that he gave him to us, right? That we would have his righteousness and he would have our sins, right? That statement too should shock us every time we hear it. The gospel is preached from this pulpit almost every Sunday and every time it should shock us. He gives us righteousness and, all he, and he took our sins. What? How? Why? Right? He gave us his righteousness. He poured out. He did not hold back. And you talk about expensive oil. This is the Prince of Peace. This is a piece of that perfect oneness that was granted lavishly and not sparingly to us. It's something that we could never fully understand the price of until we get to heaven, I believe. The blessing of unity that the Lord commanded isn't a blessing just for eternal life, right? It's a piece of eternal life that we get to bring back and enjoy now, right? We don't have to wait for unity. Unity can be found in Christ, right? We don't have to we don't have to wait. We can enjoy it now. The people that we're dwelling with now, if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to have to dwell with those people for eternity, <laughs> right? So let's, let's learn how to enjoy it. Let's learn how to find that unity together. We're going to be with them forever. So we see this psalm is, is bigger than a psalm about unity. It's a psalm about being where God is, right, and enjoying his blessings, it's a psalm about not waiting. It's a, it's a psalm about the benefits of a commanded blessing, an eternal blessing that we get to enjoy now. So what is, what is the application? What is the application points, right? I sent Joyce the application points last night, and this morning I said, don't show those. I don't want to show application points. There's a danger in bulleted application points, right, that our heart says, ah, numbers, lists, I can do those things right? No, I, I think instead the application point is, is this, seek the Lord, right? Seek the Lord and there we'll find unity. Each of us seeking the Lord, each of us pointing our communities to Jesus Christ, pointing all those that we would dwell with to the Lord so that we would enjoy a gift from eternity here on earth, Right? That is the mission of Crosspoint. If you look up our mission statement, pointing our communities to Jesus Christ, not to each other, not to some ideology or political party. All those things will fail. But we have something that will never fail, and it's Jesus Christ. And that's what we point to, and that's where we find our unity. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for providing, not sparingly, but lavishly, overflowing and a blessing that is, diffuses down and is attractive. Lord, thank you for providing a oneness, for inviting us into a perfect unity, for inviting us into somewhere we don't belong, except for that you've called us adopted sons and daughters except for that you have called us.
It was your request. Lord, I pray that you would help us seek you. Lord, that you would help us find unity through you, that you would help us learn what it is to dwell with each other. It'd help us lead those that we dwell with to you. It'd help us enjoy the gift of unity now and for eternity. We pray all these things in the name of your precious Son. Amen.